Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of The News with Dan. This last weekend was a big one, or not so big one, for the DCEU. I talked about the specific box office ramifications for The Flash on Charts with Dan yesterday, but I want to talk about the DC Universe as a whole right now, because while we still have Blue Beetle and the second Aquaman film yet to come this year, this past weekend may be seen by many as the official end of the DCEU, because the hope was always that maybe they could go out with at least one last hurrah with this Flash film. There was so much hype behind it. Michael Keaton, the potential that it could do something that would reset the universe or be some big game changer. But none of that materialized. It was an incredibly low opening. Unless a box office miracle happens, it's going to be a big money loser for the studio. So I want to look not at the box office numbers exactly, but at the history of the DCEU. And because the Flash and the comic book that it was based on is about going back in time and changing something to see if you can improve the future. We're not only going to look at the history of the DCEU, but I'm going to go back and try to flashpoint it myself and see, could we have saved this universe? Could a couple of different corporate maneuvers have butterfly affected a popular DC extended universe cinematically? So the first thing to do if we're going to change history is to be familiar with what that history is. So let's go through, first of all, a summary of the major events in the DCEU history going all the way back over a decade really to 2010. And 2010 was the year that Christopher Nolan and David S. Goyer came up with a pitch for a Superman film to DC. Nolan said that he would not take the reins of this film, but they thought that it was a good idea. And then David S. Goyer then came on as a writer. In October of 2010, Zack Snyder was chosen to direct that Superman film, which would go on to become Man of Steel. In January 2011, Henry Cavill was cast as Superman. And then in June of that summer, 2011, a big milestone happened or didn't happen when it comes to the the extended DC universe, and that's Green Lantern starring Ryan Reynolds. The hope had been that that would be the movie that would kickstart this big interconnected universe, but the movie was so poorly received and did so poorly at the box office that that plan was then scrapped. So now Man of Steel became the film upon which the hopes of a DC universe were pinned. In June 2013, Man of Steel was released to mixed reviews and solid but not spectacular box office. And this could well be the crucial point, the fulcrum on which the DCEU swung, because I think that everything that happened after that was based off of the reception on Man of Steel. Just one month after Man of Steel was released, at San Diego Comic-Con in July 2013, Batman v Superman was announced, not only as the second film featuring Henry Cavill's Superman, but as the movie that would introduce Batman. In August of 2013, Ben Affleck was officially cast as the Dark Knight. In December of that year, Gal Gadot was announced as Wonder Woman. Then in April of 2014, Ray Fisher was cast as Cyborg. In June of 2014, Jason Momoa was confirmed as Aquaman. And in October of 2014, Ezra Miller was confirmed to be playing The Flash. That same month on an investor call, and I remember that because my time in the YouTube movie space kind of coincided pretty much with the debut of Man of Steel and the run-up to it. I remember that it was an investor call because Marvel had been doing these big events and then Warner Brothers announced their multi-year plan on a phone call. On that investor call, Warner Brothers laid out their multi-year plan for their DC films. And this was the original plan. 
2016 would see the debut of Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice, directed by Zack Snyder, and Suicide Squad, directed by David Ayer. Wonder Woman, starring Gal Gadot, would premiere in 2017. And then later that year would be Justice League Part 1, directed by Zack Snyder. Ezra Miller's The Flash was originally scheduled for a 2018 release, followed by Jason Momoa's Aquaman, then Shazam in 2019, and Justice League Part 2 later that year. Then Ray Fisher's Cyborg film was set to debut in 2020, with a new Green Lantern movie due also in 2020. And with that plan in place, production proceeded full steam ahead on Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. In July of 2015, in an article for Entertainment Weekly, journalist Keith Staskowitz coined the term DC Extended Universe. It was never actually applied by Warner Brothers. It was in an article, and it stuck. That was really the birth of the term DCEU. In March 2016, Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice debuted to poor reviews and lower than expected box office. And that next month in April, Ben Affleck was confirmed to direct his own solo Batman film. But things were not going great in the DC universe. And this is another crucial point where we see things begin to change. Because after Batman v Superman was released in May of 2016, Jeff Johns and John Berg were announced as the heads of the new division called DC Films, which would oversee all movies featuring DC characters, and one of their tasks, which was not made public at the time, was to personally oversee production of Zack Snyder's first, at that time, Justice League film. During the spring of 2016, after Batman v Superman was released, David Ayer's Suicide Squad was also reportedly subject to changes at the studio's behest, including re-editing the movie, shooting new scenes to lighten up the tone, but that didn't really have a huge effect because in August of 2016, Suicide Suicide Squad debuted to disappointing reviews, but decent box office. Later that year, in December 2016, Zack Snyder wrapped principal photography on Justice League. So that should have been a picture wrap on the movie, except for maybe some pickups and reshoots. But as we all know, that wasn't the case. In January of 2017, Zack Snyder screened his cut of Justice League for Warner Brothers executives, who believed that it was too dark and too long and ordered changes. And that's where Joss Whedon enters the picture. He was brought in to rewrite some of the script lighten up the tone, but of course also later that year, personal tragedy struck Zack Snyder and his family, and that in conjunction with his difficult working relationship with Warner Brothers led him in May 2017 to step down as the director of Justice League, largely as he said in interviews later because the studio was pushing him so hard, he was under supervision, Joss Whedon was basically babysitting him, he said, I don't really have it in me right now to keep fighting the studio, so I'm going to step away. After he stepped away, Joss Whedon, of course, took over the production of Justice League, heavily rewrote the script, heavily reshot the film, and it became a whole new animal despite still having Zack Snyder's name on it. As all of this was going on in June of 2017, Wonder Woman debuted to rave reviews and strong box office, but just before the release of Justice League, Warner Brothers confirmed that DC was going to de-emphasize their shared universe. And this is another thing that is a running theme that we'll see in the history of the DCEU, which is executives and different groups of executives that would come in and undercut what the movies were trying to do. A more recent example of this is the ending of The Flash, and I won't go into exact specifics in case you haven't seen it yet, but original 
photos from the set confirmed that the ending of the movie originally featured both Michael Keaton's Bruce Wayne and Sasha Kaye's Supergirl. However, after a new set of executives greenlit Henry Cavill's return, a second ending was reportedly shot with Michael Keaton, Sasha Kaye, Gal Gadot's Wonder Woman, and Henry Cavill's Superman. But then after James Gunn and Peter Safran took over, a third ending was shot, featuring the cameo that's currently in the movie. That tampering, in my opinion, didn't help The Flash, and it certainly didn't help Justice League. And in November of 2017, Justice League debuted to poor reviews and not great box office. It reportedly lost the studio tens of millions of dollars, and it's at that point also that development on a true sequel to Man of Steel reportedly stopped. In December of 2017, Zack Snyder was reported to be out as director at DC, and future Justice League plans were scrapped. And in January of 2018, Walter Hamada entered the scene, replacing John Berg as the head of DC Films. A few months later in June, Jeff Johns stepped down as the co-head of DC Films, which basically left Walter Hamada in charge. And just a few months later in September, Henry Cavill was reportedly out as Superman. But some of the existing heroes brought huge success to the franchise overall. In December of 2018, Aquaman became the only film to date, and it doesn't really seem like The Flash is going to do it, to be a billion dollar worldwide hit in the DCEU, which is part of what says to me that another thing that really undercut the DCEU was this constant changing of strategy before it was clear that the strategy that they were on or the path that they were on wasn't going to work. In January of 2019, Ben Affleck dropped out of the solo Batman movie completely, which basically cleared the way for The Batman to exist, which starred Robert Pattinson and was a box office hit. In April 2019, Shazam debuted to okay reviews and so-so box office, but less than a year later in February of 2020, the Harley Quinn movie Birds of Prey posted the lowest DCEU opening weekend to that point in time. And just a month later, the COVID-19 pandemic closed theaters for months. But even though there were no DC films hitting theaters during that time in 2020, it was also one of the most consequential and busy times for the DCEU. And it was all about a movie that never saw the inside of a theater. In May of 2020, Warner Brothers launched their HBO Max streaming service. And one of the first announcements they made in conjunction with Zack Snyder was that the Snyder Cut of Justice League would debut on the service. Cavill was also reportedly discussing a return as Superman in films other than a Man of Steel sequel. So we saw first a move towards Zack Snyder, then a move completely away from Zack Snyder, and then in 2020, a move kind of back towards Zack Snyder, or at least with Henry Cavill and bringing the Snyder Cut into the fold. Whether that was just to sell streaming subscriptions, I don't really know. But again, it's this going back and forth that was always the supervillain, if you will, of the DCEU. Another big change happened in November 2020 as Warner Brothers announced that Wonder Woman 1984 would debut in theaters and HBO Max simultaneously. And that next month in December, Wonder Woman 1984 did debut day and date in theaters and on streaming, with early positive reviews being overwhelmed by later negative ones. Also that month, Warner Brothers announced that all 2021 movies would debut simultaneously on streaming and in theaters, which would undercut the performance of one of their movies later on down the road. In March of 2021, Zack Snyder's Justice League debuted on HBO Max to positive reviews and audience reaction. And later that month, Warner Brothers said that future DC films would be more connected into a shared universe and announced the end of their simultaneous release strategy with streaming and theaters at the end of the year. So again, we have a shift in strategy. Yes, there were always creative issues with the DCEU. 
but so much of it was behind the scenes. And that's what we're really gonna be addressing when I do this whole Flashpoint experiment here in a couple minutes. In August of 2021, James Gunn's The Suicide Squad debuted day and date on streaming and in theaters and was a disappointment at the box office. And that next year, in April of 2022, Warner Brothers and Discovery merged and David Zaslav took over as the head of the new company, Warner Discovery. In August of last year, Batgirl, a movie featuring not only the character of Batgirl, but also Brendan Fraser, who would go on to win an Academy Award for Best Actor, and Michael Keaton's Batman, was shelved by Warner Brothers in a cost-cutting move, and it seems like it will never see the light of day. And then last October, Black Adam premiered, and while it failed to become a breakout box office hit, it also promised Henry Cavill's return as Superman in a post credit scene. It was also revealed that the Man of Steel sequel was reportedly once again in the works. I am back as Superman. And the image you see on this post and what you saw in Black Adam are just a very small taste of things to come. But later in October, Walter Hamada exited as head of DC Films and James Gunn and Peter Safran were announced as the head of DC Studios, the new version of DC Films. Just a couple of months after Cavill's return was announced in December of last year, a third film featuring Gal Gadot's Wonder Woman was scrapped and Cavill announced that he would not, after all, be returning as Superman. Then a month later in January of this year, Gunn and Saffron announced a new slate of DC films that would reboot nearly all of the properties. And this is a really odd thing. James Gunn specifically said in interviews that The Flash would be the film that would reset the DC continuity, which looking at it, I don't really see how that happened. In March of this year, Shazam! Fury of the Gods was an abject flop at the box office. And then, of course, this past weekend, The Flash, despite huge hype, massively underperformed expectations. There are two films that are left on the release calendar for this year, but the prospects for both of them don't look great. And this appears to be how the DCEU is going to end, just to fizzle out. People thought at one time that this had the potential to be the biggest franchise in the world. So what went wrong? And is there any way that this could have actually succeeded? Well, there's no way that we can know for sure, but looking at this timeline and looking at the history, I decided to go back to one critical point in the development of the DCEU and change, well, some big things. So this is all internal changes. I'm not changing real world events or saying like, well, in my version, the pandemic never happens. This is all internal Warner Brothers changes. But I think that this could have been a way forward. And a lot of it involves sticking to Zack Snyder's vision, which many people, including myself at the time, said that the studio shouldn't do. But now, with the benefit of hindsight and having seen Zack Snyder's Justice League and knowing how much better received it was than the theatrical cut that we got, again, this all comes to not panicking and changing directions. So this would be my pitch for a more consistent direction for the DC Universe to see if maybe we could have been at a different point in this same point in time where things were still going forward with the potential for great success. So for my Flashpoint timeline, we're going back to July of 2013 and that fateful San Diego Comic-Con. When Batman v Superman was announced at Comic-Con, I remember that was a huge announcement and everybody was so excited. But now that we know what was in the film, it did seem like a bit of a rush job, bringing in all the characters and trying to get the Justice League all set up right then and there. So this is where we're going to change history a little bit. We are not going to announce Batman v Superman at Comic-Con 2013, we are instead going to make a different set of announcements which will roll forward in time. So this is my proposed Flashpoint DCEU timeline. 
There are big announcements made in July of 2013, but those announcements are Man of Steel 2 and a solo Batman film, as well as an upcoming Justice League movie. Maybe you announce at that time even that it's a two-parter. So in August 2013, we announced that Ben Affleck is going to be Batman, and then we announced that Gal Gadot is going to be Wonder Woman. Ray Fisher and Jason Momoa announcements are the same. Now, I'm making another big change here by announcing in October that Grant Gustin and not Ezra Miller will be cast as the DCEU's Flash instead of as the lead in the TV series. Let's just say in this universe that Grant Gustin's audition for the Flash TV show caught the eye of the feature film division so they grabbed him for the movie and somebody else got the lead role in the series really this is just a way to continue improving the movies and honestly not have to deal with any Ezra Miller issues in this Flashpoint timeline now, one thing I'm also keeping the same, just to kind of keep this timeline a little more streamlined, is a big announcement in October 2014 of the future films in the DC Universe. But this is a different slate of films. The slate that I'm announcing in October 2014 is that in 2016, we're going to be getting Man of Steel 2, directed by Zack Snyder, The Batman, starring and directed by Ben Affleck, and Ray Fisher's Cyborg movie. Then in 2017, we'd be releasing Wonder Woman starring Gal Gadot and Suicide Squad directed by David Ayer. 2018 would bring The Flash starring Grant Gustin and Aquaman starring Jason Momoa. Then Shazam and Green Lantern in 2019. And then in summer of 2020, we have the first part of Justice League followed by part two in 2021. And for the most part, this schedule would actually happen. March 2016 would bring Zack Snyder's Man of Steel 2. July 2016 would bring us Ben Affleck's The Batman. And November 2016 would see Ray Fisher's Cyborg hit theaters. Then in May of 2017, Wonder Woman would be released. August of 2017 would see the release of Suicide Squad. And as happened at the time, the announcement of the Harley Quinn movie, Birds of Prey. In June of 2018, The Flash starring Grant Gustin would be released. And Wonder Woman 1984 would be announced. Then in December of 2018, as happened in our timeline, Aquaman would be released, followed by Shazam in April of 2019, and in July of 2019, Green Lantern featuring Jon Stewart and Hal Jordan. February of 2020 would see Birds of Prey being released as we hyped up the release of Justice League Part 1 later in the year, but again, the real world would intervene and theaters would still close in March of 2020. However, instead of sending their movies to day-and-date streaming, I am having Warner instead holding back the release of Justice League until November of 2021, when Justice League Part 1, directed by Zack Snyder, would become the biggest movie to release after theaters reopened, setting up, of course, Justice League Part 2. Then April 2022 would find the Warner Brothers Discovery merger, but hopefully there wouldn't be any need to adjust strategy. May of 2022 would see the release of Wonder Woman 1984 after a pandemic-related delay, followed by the release of Aquaman 2 in May of 2023. Then in December 2023, Justice League Part 2 would hit theaters, which would be a major movie similar to Avengers Infinity War or Avengers Endgame in this DC timeline. I don't know if that would be the death of Superman, it would be some kind of big event, which would lead into May 2024 being the release of The Flash Flashpoint, which would be a key film in the DCEU, either resetting the timeline or having a major development and basically kicking off the equivalent of Phase 2 of this DC universe. Now, would all of these movies have worked? I don't know. Would a Zack Snyder Man of Steel 2 have been received better than the original Man of Steel or Batman v Superman? Again, I don't know. I don't know if David Ayer's Suicide Squad would have been received better if it had less studio interference. But what I do know is that what did happen in our timeline 
which is mainly the result of studio interference and backtracking on strategy and getting scared and changeover, so much changeover, the head of DC Films, the head of Warner Brothers, the CEO, etc. All of that could have potentially been averted with a much clearer game plan. So this is my pitch, but even if you don't agree with this pitch, I think it's very obvious, whatever path there is out there, where the DC films became the biggest movies in the world, we're not on that path. The corporate incompetence, I think, should be the story, the legacy of the DCEU, and not necessarily, oh, well, these filmmakers blew it, or these actors blew it. Maybe that's part of it, but I think the bigger part of it is what you didn't see on screen, and perhaps if that had changed just that much, we'd be in a much different place right now. I'll be taking your questions for our Ask Dan segment in just a minute, but before we do, I want to thank the sponsors for this week's show. This episode is brought to you by First Leaf. You know, summer's a great time, always exciting activities going on or more time to spend with friends and family, and that's why this was the perfect time to join the First Leaf Wine Club. I love First Leaf because they make it super easy to get personalized wine boxes delivered on my schedule so I don't have to worry about missing a delivery that I might have to sign for. And you know, a lot of my friends are wine experts, and I am a total amateur, but that's not a problem because to get started with First Leaf, all you have to do is answer some quick questions about your likes and dislikes on their website, and their expert team will select a customized assortment of world-class wines based on your preferences. And the questionnaire was super easy to fill out. I don't know all the names of the wines that I like yet, or I wouldn't even know what to ask for, but I described my specific tastes, and they packaged up a great first shipment for me. Your personalized wine shipments are delivered right to your door so you can kick back and enjoy bottles you'll love all summer long, and they're all priced lower than what you'd pay at a wine store, plus every selection is backed by First Leaf's 100% satisfaction guarantee. To make sure you've got great wine when you want it this summer, you've got to try First Leaf. Just head over to tryfirstleaf.com slash Merle to sign up, and you'll get your first six hand-curated bottles for just $44.95. Go to tryfirstleaf.com slash Merle, that's T-R-Y-F-I-R-S-T-L-E-A-F dot com slash Merle to get your first six bottles for under $8 a bottle. Tryfirstleaf.com slash Merle. This episode is brought to you by AG1, a daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. You know, focusing on your health isn't just for the winter months, it's also important during the summer because it never hurts to boost your immune system against something like a summer cold. Ugh, those are the worst. I drink AG1 when I have my breakfast shake every day and it makes me feel like I'm covering my nutritional bases and just starting the day off right. I've struggled in the past with keeping to a new routine, but drinking AG1 is as simple as having a glass of water or a breakfast shake in the morning. It's just one scoop of powder mixed with water once a day, that's it. Every scoop is packed with 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, and it's delivered right to me every month, so it's been super easy to make it a daily habit. And the benefits like gut health and an overall energy boost have been noticeable. If you want to take ownership of your health, try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Just go to drinkag1.com Dan. That's drinkag1.com Dan. Check it out. 
All right, so we have potentially saved the DC universe. Let's now get to your questions. And one thing I, d I wanted to know, on the last episode, I featured a question uh, with somebody commenting on the shark in the intro and saying that they didn't like the shark and could I take the shark out? And I, I legitimately, and this is true, did not mean to, I wasn't trying to make fun of that person. I really just thought it was a very odd, interesting question. But also people saying like, oh, Dan is like intentionally trolling this person by putting Jaws stuff in the background. I mean, Jaws stuff has been in the background of every video I've done ever. And and I was not intending to troll anybody or, or belittle anybody. I just thought it was kind of an odd, strange question to get. Uh, so respectfully, uh, the Jaws stuff, we've said it, the, the question has been asked, you know, let's not dwell on it or linger on it. Um, let's move on uh, because it really is not my intention. I'm not trying to make this a thing or make that person a subject of ridicule. It really was just kind of a curious question. A lot of the questions I'm featuring this week, just by coincidence, are sort of, um, as we used to call them on Screen Junkies, broccoli questions. Um, but I like broccoli questions because it's stuff about the business, etc. cetera. Uh, so let's get to the first one, uh, which is left by, I noticed that YouTube changed over to at names now for some reason. Uh, Edgar Left 6134 said, Dan, can you rate some of the recent releases you've already reviewed on this new sliding scale in an upcoming news video? And that's a great question. Yes, if you haven't seen uh, some of my more recent reviews, I've introduced a new rating system, which is sort of a sliding scale. It's not a one to five stars or an A to F system with a different name because there are degrees to how much I can like a movie inside of each, you know, kind of categorization. And it's really a way for me to just sort of express my overall thoughts in a way that I think still shows a little bit of nuance. So yes, just to look at some of the more major releases for the summer and the year so far, if I were to rate them on that sliding scale. For Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, I would have that rated as not a fan. Not quite down there, close to stay away, but definitely not a fan. Uh, for Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves, I would easily have given that a see it now rating. I really, really like that movie. Uh, for Fast X, again, it would be on not a fan. A little bit closer to It's Fine, just because I liked Jason Momoa. I thought the first like 45 minutes of the movie were pretty good. And then it just sort of went crazy and not in that good Fast and the Furious way. So that would have been rated as not a fan. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, I was lower on that movie than most people. That would have rated an It's Fine for me. Uh, John Wick Chapter 4 would have been an easy see it now. Definitely, I loved that movie. Uh, the Little Mermaid would have been an It's Good rating for me. I liked that film. It definitely had some flaws, but I enjoyed it overall. Uh, Shazam! Fury of the Gods. That would be a movie that I would have rated stay away. It's not just that I didn't like it. I just didn't think that it was very well written or very well made at all. So that movie would have been, I think, the only one on this list so far to get a stay away rating. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, easily again a see it now rating. Uh, another movie that I really, really liked. And then the Super Mario Brothers movie. I would have gone a shade above It's Fine up into the It's Good category. Not a groundbreaking story, but I think that it was a fun movie and I really liked the animation. And it's pretty much exactly where I would have ranked Transformers Rise of the Beasts. Another movie that went just above the fine category for me because I had a lot of fun with it uh, and I thought that it was certainly the best of the live action Transformers films not including uh, Bumblebee which would still be my favorite uh, so yeah that's how I would have rated some of the more recent films that have come out and stay tuned because I will be doing this scale uh, in the future on my reviews. Heather Agus 7501 says, do you ever go back and watch old movie fights? And if so, how many debates come to fruition? It's pretty amazing. I recently watched the fight wherein you were asked if they should make more avatars after the first one and you were a hard no 
Also watched one where Roth basically pitches WandaVision. The crazy thing about movie fights is that, like, I'm so flattered that people still come up and say, like, oh, I remember that fight where you did this, that, and the other thing. With very few exceptions, I remember nothing that I ever said on movie fights. And it's not because I devalued it. I actually loved doing that show. It's usually because movie fights would be a thing where it's like, we're writing an Oz trailer, we're editing something, or we're trying to get a junket together. And it's like, what time is it? Oh, we got to go do movie fights. So then we would go do movie fights and I'd go and have fun and have a great time. And then it'd be back to the office to go work on what we were working on. Uh, so I never really like, it never really like wrote into my brain exactly what we were doing. I would just, it's almost like a fever dream. I just kind of go and do it and then go do something else. Uh, but I am so flattered that people still remember certain fights. And uh, like this, a lot of you uh, remind me of what I said on movie fights. So I'm glad that people still enjoy it. Anthony Robert 1674 says, I was watching charts and I got this question. Broadly, the question is who pays for movie advertising? For example, does Disney pay McDonald's for Happy Meal toys or does McDonald's pay Disney? I'm guessing Audi paid Marvel for the huge Avenger tie-ins. If that's the case, are these accounted for in the prints and advertising costs the trades give? Yeah, any kind of a tie-in that is a company that is paying to be a partner with the movie. So that's another revenue stream for the studio, but it's sort of a double-edged sword. It's kind of what led Tim Burton to step away from the Batman series because McDonald's had all these product tie-ins with Batman Returns, and then the movie came out and it was so dark, and McDonald's is like, what the hell? We've got all these penguin toys, like, ah, driving his thing around, and then he's like, you know, bleeding black goo out of his mouth and, you know, biting people's noses off. Uh, so it is money that they're paying the studios, but at the same time, there is somewhat of an obligation uh, to those brands to not kind of sully them, which usually doesn't happen. Uh, so it doesn't include the prints and advertising costs. That's completely different. And that's why I always say when I'm doing profitability and cost breakdowns on charts, that this is theatrical revenues only, because there are often sometimes tens or even over a hundred million dollars worth of product tie-ins that is additional revenue for a movie that does get put towards its expenses. Arroyo2099 says, do you prefer a rowdy crowd when you watch a film or dead silence? Personally, I feel that the magic of the movie going experience is a sense of community. I think there's a difference from annoying moviegoers who are on their phones or talk throughout the film and a rowdy crowd who cheer. I don't understand why people prefer quiet films since you could see that at home by yourself. I, I love when a crowd is into a movie. I love any sort of noise that a crowd generates because the movie is getting that reaction out of them. So for example, Spider-Man No Way Home, the first time I saw it was a critic screening, which you know had some noise, but it was a little more subdued. Uh, but I went again to see it with Mara on opening weekend, kind of knowing what was coming. And that was like being at a football game, but you knew when the team was gonna score a touchdown, so you just got to kind of anticipate the crowd reaction. And that was one of the best times I've ever had in a movie. Avengers Endgame is one of the best times I've ever had in a movie. Even if I'll go see something like Star Wars or Die Hard or Jaws at like a revival screening, I love being in a crowd that's cheering and laughing and everything else because the movie's eliciting that response. Uh, what I don't like is when people are talking during a movie or being rowdy that's not tied into the movie itself because then that's just a distraction. So I actually love an involved crowd with the movie if it is tied into what that movie is trying to get out of you. Jep McNair 6494 says, I know you're a certified critic on Rotten Tomatoes, but I only occasionally see your reviews on there. Can you explain how that works? Do you have to submit each of your reviews to Rotten Tomatoes or do they pull from your review when you post it to YouTube? Well, when I was very first listed on Rotten Tomatoes, they would 
pull the quote for me. But because so many more critics are now part of Rotten Tomatoes, I don't think they do that much anymore. Um, so you basically self-submit. You have a login, you submit your review, you do your own pull quote, you put in your own rating, um, fresh, rotten, A to F, or six out of 10, or one to 10, whatever you want to call it, whatever rating system that you use. Um, the reason that you haven't seen me on there in a while is just because I haven't submitted in a while, because as I've said with my sliding scale, it's, it's really tough for me right now with binary ratings and trying to figure that out because I just don't think it helps the critical discussion. So I, I'm trying to figure out, do I still want to post on there? Do I not want to post on there? There may be a few critics, some of the top critics that they pull the quotes for still on a website level. But once you are kind of approved to post there, I think the expectation is that you are going to self-submit as well. And our final question comes from MaxV8475, who says, do you ever have trouble getting fully immersed in a movie because you're exhausted from driving many hours to a premiere, for example, or something that totally is unrelated to the movie itself? Is there anything special you do to get yourself into the movie reviewing headspace? Uh, well, I'm lucky to have a great partner in Mara that if we do have to drive several hours to see a movie, which happens once every month or two, um, if I want to try to hit embargo, which I try to do for the channel, she will split the driving with me, or a lot of times we'll drive the whole way there the whole way back, which will allow me to be rested, if, especially if I've been up late the night before working on a video. Um, because if I'm reviewing a movie, I don't want to go in tired. You're right. I don't want anything to interfere with the headspace that I'm in. I don't want to be fighting exhaustion. Uh, my philosophy on every movie is that I walk in as a critic in the optimal condition in the sense that I'm giving it the best shot that I can possibly give it. That means that I am well rested. Uh, that means that I am letting go of any expectation, positive or negative. If I didn't like the last movie in the franchise, I leave that at the door. If the last movie in the franchise is one of my favorites in the franchise, I leave that at the door. Because while my thoughts are subjective, meaning my opinions are my own, I want to walk in as objectively as possible, basically like, you know, a fresh piece of clay and let the movie kind of mold me as it will. So the answer is yes, I'm sure there has been a time or two where I was maybe not as well rested as I should have been, but I really do actively try to do that because the headspace that I want to be in when reviewing a movie is just to be completely open to whatever the movie has for me and to just take that all in and really nothing else. Thanks everybody for sending in your questions. Don't forget to submit your own in the description below using the hashtag AskDan and stay tuned this week for reviews of Wes Anderson's Asteroid City and the new comedy No Hard Feelings as well as a new episode of Streaming Charts where we're going to talk about the new Netflix metrics. Till then, stay safe and I'll see you next time. Bye.